Okay, the next question from Polly um, involves exploration and non-physical reality. Is it important or advantageous to be able to fully disconnect from the body when exploring non-physical matter reality? And if yes, why? Well, it's, it's not necessary to completely disconnect from the body. You know, you can do you can parallel process. You can be in multiple realities at the same time. But when you parallel process, you're also sharing your attention, if you will. You're sharing uh, your, your processing. So let's say that you are 50% here and 50% some other reality frame. Well, you're only processing at 50% in each of those other two reality frames. It's not like you're 100% in that other reality frame and 100% here. It doesn't work that way. The way it works is that you... You are spreading yourself over multiple frames. So the advantage is parallel processing. You can do two things at once because it doesn't take a whole lot of your skill to, let's say, drive your car over a, over a familiar route, right? You can do that without a whole lot of your attention. I mean, you have to be paying attention to other cars, traffic lights, that kind of thing, but you don't have to have a deep uh, attention. You can just have a superficial attention that keeps track of everything that's going on and where all the cars are and where are the red lights and where you're going and that kind of thing. And that's, that's at a very superficial level. So you can do that and do other things at the same time. <laughs> Children, don't try this at home, right? Uh, I'm not encouraging people to drive their cars and meditate or something, please. But uh, that's just an example. People do that all the time. They drive and then they get home and they say, how did I get here? I really don't remember, you know, that last two miles. Where, what was I doing? You know, where I don't remember making that turn. I really don't remember anything after I left such and such a place. And then here I am at home. That happens to all of us. That's why I'm using that as an example. Often our minds are off doing something else while we really should be paying attention, you know, to our driving. But it's because the driving can be such a shallow part of our attention that we let other parts of our mind function in other places. So it's just something that happens to all of us, makes it a good example because everybody can relate to that that experience. So that's a so the good the good news is you can parallel and multiprocess. So if you'd like if you're expecting a telephone call and you don't want to miss it, but it's time for you to meditate, well then it's a good idea. Meditate with uh, you know ninety percent, keep ten percent here listening to the telephone. That works just fine. On the other hand, if what you're doing in your out-of-body or in your, your meditation state and other reality frames is something that really demands all of your focus, then you take 100% and give it all your focus. Give it all of your attention. If you're learning something really important there, then you'll want 100%, in which case you don't leave anything behind. And if the phone rings, you never heard it, you see. If somebody comes into the house, you just don't hear it because you're really not here anymore. So the disadvantage in parallel processing is you're only processing at, you know, a percent of capacity. You're not really processing at your total capacity, which is sometimes a problem, sometimes not. You know, sometimes it's an advantage. So there is no reason that you can't, uh, that you can't uh, parallel process or that you shouldn't. It just depends on what you're doing. Oftentimes when I'm doing things in the, in the non-physical, 
I find that it requires all of my attention, and then I don't have any part of me left here. Other times, it doesn't require that much of my attention. I can talk to somebody who's telling me about, you know, uh, an illness they have or an illness somebody else has, and I, I immediately start working on that illness or whatever if I go and I look at it and I see is it a good thing for me to do or not to do, and if so, and what do I need to help, and all that I'm doing while they're talking to me, explaining to me as, as they tell me facts, I'm processing those facts at the same time because listening to somebody talk plus working in another reality frame is just very compatible. It doesn't need 100% of my attention, and I can do I can do that as we go. Now, if I wanted to put my maximum effort into helping that person, I'd have to do it with withdrawing, you know, all of me from this reality. But then I wouldn't be able to stand there and have the conversation as I as I went. So, you know, it's a choice. And it's nice to be able to make that choice because sometimes you want it one way, sometimes you want it the other way. And if if I have troubles to with disconnecting, my assumption for now is that uh, there must be some fear which prevents me of letting go. Is yeah. that, uh, yeah. That, that's that's just, yeah. The, the people who don't disconnect entirely is because they're afraid if they disconnect, they won't come back. You know, what if I unplug? How do I replug in? And they're not quite sure about that process, and because of that, they never let go of it. They always keep apart here. And that'll just lessen with time. The more experience you have, the more confidence you build, and you realize coming back is not a problem. You don't have to leave a trail of breadcrumbs, you know, to, to uh, get back or a connection. You can just use your intent to come back, and you'll come back just fine. So that that would be a fear that that is uh, doing that. Usually, it just you know, it's not something you consciously have to do. It just depends on your intent and what you're doing. If you're totally absorbed in this thing and you're out of body experience then the rest of it will just go away. And you just won't be aware of what's going on in this experience. And then when you're less involved in it, then this will maybe come back. So it's not typically something you have to direct with your intellect. It's just something that naturally happens depending on the demands that you make. I'd like to be listening to this conversation, yet working on this healing at the same time. So because that's your intent, that's the way it works. So it's not an intellectually driven thing. So the idea is not you intellectually have to let go of that five or ten percent that you're holding back that you can't seem to, you know, to, to take with you. You're doing that from some being level fear, and when that fear goes away, it will just naturally flow in whatever percentage from a hundred to you know to zero on either side that that is that is what you intend it to be. So it's not an intellectual process. It's just a natural process. That was spot on, Tom. Thank you very much, because I just realized I was trying to control myself somehow to letting go the intellect. So intellect should have let go of intellect and some fear and something like that. So perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. A question that's related to what you've just discussed it comes in also from Polly. Are there essentially just two ways of how to focus on something in MPMR? through feeling and through intellect? Well, I've generally broken down the uh, being level versus versus intellectual level. Um, you might call that the being level. You could also call your intuitive. You know, it's, a, it's more of an intuitive uh, level. Uh, a lot of your emotion is at the being level. 
that's why sometimes we have these emotions and we wonder where did that come from? You know, uh, we'd have maybe anger or some other kind of connection and we're intellectually, we're not really sure where that came from, comes out of the being level. Um, I do that just because it's a teaching tool, not because there's any real divider between the intellect and the being level. You see, it's not really you have this intellect and you have this being level and they're just separate things and they don't, uh, you know, they're unconnected. Naturally, you're a whole being. You have a cognitive process. And when that cognitive process functions, it can function with or without fear and ego. If that cognitive function does not have any fear or ego attached to it, then that cognitive function is happening at the being level. You see? So now that's cognitive function. We might call that the intellect. Okay, so the cognitive function, that's your thinking. You can think at the being level. It's not that the being level doesn't think, only the intellect thinks. That's not really the way it is. The being level can think too, but it's thinking without fear and ego. Usually our intellect is expressing as we intellectually process things and what we what comes out of this intellectual level we're processing through our fears and our you know our beliefs our expectations you know all that stuff is is uh is filtering how our intellect is thinking and forming its thoughts so that's why it's just handy in talking with people about this to separate the intellectual level from the being level because that makes it an easy way of separating kind of the the uh, where the fear and ego is interacting and just what you are. Now, there's also fear and ego at the being level, right? You can have a being level that has a certain amount of fear, a certain amount of ego is in your being. That's just the way you are. And your intellect expresses that fear and being. And that's what we call the your cognitive level expresses that that fear and that ego, and that's what we're calling the intellectual level. And that's the way it is for probably 99.999% of humanity. That's kind of the way it works. The intellect expresses the fear and ego that's, you know, part of the being. So this, this intellectual level being level is a, is a arbitrary, artificial uh, breaking apart of the being just to make it easier for people to understand these different functions and where the ego and fear, kind of how that interacts and where how that gets expressed, mostly through the intellect, sometimes not, sometimes through the emotions. But there's really just one person. So if you get rid of the fear and intellect, if you, uh, you know, increase the quality of your consciousness and the fear is gone and the uh, ego is gone, then you still have an intellect. You still have a, a cognitive function that is not expressing ego and fear. You've got rid of that. It's just expressing the inner being. So see, in, in a way, I create a problem when I make this, this uh, arbitrary distinction between the intellect and the, and, the, and the being level. But it helps some people see those two functions that's going on inside of them, and I split it out that way. But you're really just a whole person. You don't have these two separate functions going on. It's all... It's all one, it's really all one thing. It's just an arbitrary way I break it out to make it easier for people to deal with that part of themselves because it's the intellect that almost everybody that is expressing the fear and the ego most of the time because almost everybody has fear and ego most of the time. So it is confusing though. I, I do, uh, I just see how I confuse people with this, with this model.
but it, it also helps people separate the separate the two. So hopefully it helps more than it confuses. Well, maybe I can give an example. Um, I've uh, not really meant this question to, uh, let's say, to this direction of discussion. Uh, in my attempts to explore the non-physical reality, I sometimes have questions or sometimes I try to work with some metaphors or let's say try to heal or stuff like that. And I, uh, I noticed that uh, I can do that somehow with force with, I, I would say, intellect, but maybe it's more force, where I physically feel tension in my eyes and maybe in my head. And uh, I noticed that the other way, basically the opposite, in, as, I, as, I, as I feel it personally, is to somehow just to want it, to, to hold that intention and to somehow open up. And uh, I, I perceived it as, as a feeling, as trying to feel that intention and to uh, go into that and then it's uh, it's it, it can also happen uh, the way I basically intended it to do but without this tension in my head and it, I that's why I call it intellect and, and feeling yeah that that uh, that process what is what you do when you're when you're doing that uh, when you're trying to heal and you feel yourself with it's almost like anxiety. You can feel the tension in your head, in your eyes, and, and so on uh, from this process because you're trying to force, you're trying to put a lot of power and a lot of energy into it. What that is is a, is a habit. In your, in your belief system, if you're really trying hard, you have to strain. You have to push, you see. If you're not straining and pushing and going, ah, you know, trying to make this happen, then you're not really trying very hard. That's just kind of a belief that you have to be pushing and straining and whatever. So now you want to really put a lot of energy. You want to try very hard to do this healing. So that, that belief, that habit comes in, and then there you are. And your eyes are all squinched up, and you're, you, know, you can feel the tension. You're putting that in. That's just because you, you associate that that's required. Something that you do that's hard, that puts a lot of energy into something, requires you to strain and push and groan and grit your teeth and do all those kinds of things. That's just a, it's a metaphor, you see, and it doesn't really help any. It doesn't, doesn't add anything. You can, you can learn to put, to put power and force into something just with your mind and let the body stay relaxed and it'll work just as well. But then that, the scrunching up the eyes and gritting your teeth then becomes part of a tool, you see. It's part of a tool that helps you focus a lot of extra oomph behind it if you do that because that's the, you make that association in your mind. So it usually doesn't really hurt either, but it doesn't help. It's just a, a habit. It's a connection you make to the physical. This is not a physical thing. The healing is not a physical thing, you see, and, and uh, squinching your eyes up and putting that kind of tension in your body to give you the sensation of trying hard is a is a tool, but a pretty ineffective tool. Matter of fact, if you do that too much, you'll have more focus on the physical tension than you actually have on what you're doing. And pretty soon, what you're intending to do is scrunch up your eyes and, and do a lot of you know, groaning or, or a lot of pushing on it, and you're not really putting the force into the result. 
So it can it can bleed off your force as well if you get too much into that. So then you're you're putting your energy in the wrong thing. You're putting your energy into a physical uh, manifestation of the effort and not really putting it into what you're doing. So you can stay perfectly relaxed. It's just a mental activity and straining the body isn't going to help it. Isn't going to help it at all. It might not hurt it either if you if you still are focused on what you're doing, but it certainly isn't going to help it. I'd say just learn to let go of that gracefully to where you're not doing that. It's just a habit that is inconsequential. I mean, we always see it on the television, right? When the when the wizard or something, uh, you know, has to blow something up, he always scrunches up his face and eyes and build, you know, makes his fists real tight, and you can see there's a lot of physical tension going on as he puts the energy into the spell or something. So, you know, that's the way they visually show us how hard he's working at it. Because if we just saw him sitting there with a smile on his face, you know, we just wouldn't think he was doing anything. So we make him go through this physical contortion just to get across the point that he's really working hard at this. And you see that on the television and, you know, we tend to mimic it. And if we're going to do something with our minds that's really hard, then we feel like we need to ball up our fists and grit our teeth, too. And uh, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, it's just not necessary. Holly's next question uh, is on focus and awareness. Um, basically, it is, how is awareness heightened? Is it when you sharply focus into one data stream? Is it more the feeling or sensing than it is perceiving through our physical or non-physical sense of sight? Well, when I talk about sharpening a focus in general, to most people, when I say you need a sharp, you know, in, uh, focus. You need you need to uh, be perfectly clear and sharply focused. What I'm really talking about there is that you need to let go of everything else. So if you're going to have your most intense and powerful focus, that means you're 100% invested in that focus. It's not like you left 10% behind listening for the phone to ring. That's not the most intense focus. So basically it means having everything else, all other thoughts, and, you know, we have a lot of thoughts that we don't even know we have. You know, it's only when you start to meditate that you realize you got all this stuff going on in your head all the time that you didn't even know was there. Well, it's like that even after you do meditate a while, you get rid of some of it, but there's still stuff, there's still programs running in the background. And if you can let go of all of those programs running in the background, then that will be... What I'm talking about is a is a very uh, sharp and clear focus. It's a little harder than it sounds. We, we like I say, we start to meditate and we see everything, all the thoughts that are constantly running in our mind. And we can get rid of probably 80 or 90 percent of them, but there's usually some percentage that we don't even notice. They just run in there, and they've run so long and so often that we don't even know they're there. We don't even see them. We don't even think about them. But if you try to be very still and very quiet as you're doing these things and see what else is your mind running. You know, are you uh, thinking about the result and how that result will affect somebody else rather than just doing the work to create the result? You're also thinking about the, you know, after the result is done and uh, how you're going to feel about that and how the other person is going to feel about that and what will that enable them to do 
and it's still really about the same subject, but you're off you're off focus now. You're just focusing on what you want to accomplish, not on seeing the downstream results and how you got to here and the other things that you're doing. And so all of that you just need to let go of and just be 100% focused in what you're doing. And that's really what I mean. So we're back to that a percent of you here, a percent of you there, you know, and little bits and pieces of your thoughts going, you know, doing other things. That's what this, that's what weakens your focus. And that's mostly practice, just like meditation is mostly practice. Holly's next question has to do with the dream reality. I know you've mentioned that this is as valid a reality for learning as here or anywhere. His question is, could movies and literature be considered some type of shared dream in which we are given the opportunity to work on certain fears and issues connected to our society? And could this somehow be linked with the metaphor of morphogenic fields, which Rupert Sheldick describes? Well, there is a phenomenon called collective consciousness. And that kind of border, your question kind of borders on this, this concept of collective consciousness. We are all netted. Every individuated unit of consciousness is able to communicate with every other individuated unit of consciousness. Now, everybody isn't obviously talking to everybody else at the same time, and we don't listen to all of that. We filter things out that we don't you know, want to process. That doesn't mean we don't get the message or there's not a connection. We just filter it out and don't pay any attention to it. We're selective in it with our attention that way. That's why we don't hear all the all that noise going on. So we have a connection between everybody. That means we pass ideas around. That's how fads get started. That's why, you know, a hundred ladies will line up at four o'clock in the morning to get into a store to buy a little cloth sack of beans called a beanie baby, right? Just because it's turned into a fad. There's this uh uh consciousness idea of this is a wonderful thing, I need to have one, and that's generated by advertising and other things, but it's mostly generated by people who get excited about it, get other people excited about it just because they're connected. So it gets infectious. We know the negative side of that as mob psychology. People get other people excited about you know doing ugly things in a mob, right? Taking uh, taking control of a situation, vigilante justice, that sort of thing. People can get wound up about that in a mob that individually would never think of doing something like that. Well, it's the same way. People get wound up in a in a mob to go buy Beanie Babies that ordinarily would never think of doing a thing like that. It works, you know, on a on kind of a neutral side and on a positive side as well as on the negative side. And this accounts for some of what uh, Rupert Sheldrake, you know, called his morphic field. He has a little different idea about it because he sees it as a field like electromagnetic field. You know, he sees it that kind of a field that radiates out from people and so on. But it's not like that. We're just consciousness, and we're we're connected through links. We pass information around. So it's not a physical field as Rupert imagines. Actually, there really are no such things as fields. Fields are non-physical. Too. You know, there you know, we'd say, well, there's an electric field. That is not really electric field. That's more of the stuff Einstein called spooky action at a distance. The field is an assumption because we 
want it to be a physical process. We know that if we put a, a, a meter that detects electric fields at a particular place in space, we can say, oh, there's a, you know, there's an electric field here of a certain strength. Well, all we know is that if you put that meter at that place in space, you get this result. Okay? We make up the concept of a field to explain that fact. The fact, the field isn't the fact. You see, the field is an assumption. The fact is that you put a meter up in a certain place to measure something and you get a result at that place. And that's the fact. But that is just data. You see, that's information at that point in space. You can think of it as that piece of space contains information. And when you put that little field measuring device up there, it gathers the information. This idea of a field makes us feel better. Oh, it's a physical field. Well, what is this physical field? Well, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't really touch it. It's invisible, but trust me, it's there, you see, because I measure this thing. So, you know, the morphic field is like that, too. There really isn't a physical morphic field running out telling dogs that their masters are about to come home. There is this communication between all consciousness, including the dog's consciousness and the master's consciousness. So it's a different thing that's really going on. But this, this connection of all of us produces what um, Jung called archetypes. Okay, there's all sorts of, if you look at Jungian psychology, he talks about um, archetypes. Archetypes can be at a social level. They can be at a species level, like you can have human. You know, they're human archetypes. Things that are in common, ideas and concepts that are just common to being human or just common to being a dog. You know, I guess there's dog archetypes too. It's those things that have commonality among, let's say, a species or a culture or an organization. There's organizational archetypes too. And that's the same sort of thing we're talking about, whether it's a mob psychology or whether it's a beanie baby psychology or whether it's a bunch of people that are uh, at the monastery around a lot of highly spiritual people and they all feel lighter and more joyful and, you know, more spiritual because they're around all these people. It's the same thing. They're getting pulled up just like the mob pulls them down, just like the people get pulled to go get Beanie Babies. So we are netted, and this, these, the things that are common among people then become archetypes. These are seen as just aspects of being human, but really they're, they're ideas and feelings that humans have that resonate with all humans everywhere. They're fundamental things, you see, but it's it's the connection, it's the data connections between us all that is what's at the that's the root of that. So that's that's kind of the, the basics, you know, around your question. It's the data passing that creates the things. Yes, it's associated with morphic fields, but only in the sense that a morphic field is also this data being passed around. It's not a physical biological field that goes out and informs your dog that you're about to come home because the dog is receiving the field. We just make up fields because we don't know how else to describe this phenomena. See, it's another, it's one of these phenomena that doesn't seem to have a physical, a physical connection and we just can't tolerate no physical connection. So we make up a physical field and Rupert Sheldrake was just doing the same thing that physicists had done for, you know, for a hundred years. They, they use their uh, their um, models as physical models of fields. There really are no such things as fields. Fields don't really exist. An electric 
electromagnetic fields are the same. They really don't exist. There's just data at various points in space. So if you have a charge here, and uh, that charge, uh, you move that charge around, it creates an electric field, and you measure it a certain distance away, well, because you've moved that distance from that moving charge, you will get a field strength of a certain value. That's just information at that point in space. You see, we don't have to have a field that makes it go from here to there. And that it takes, uh, that, that that field propagates at the speed of light, well, that's a change, and that change can't, you know, that change has to move, and it can only move as fast as the speed of light, because that's one chunk of, of uh, volume increment, one pixel of volume for every delta T cycle of updating the thing. Anything can't move any faster than that. So that's as instantaneous as it gets. So that's, those are the properties of the field. That this field is something physical is a belief, an assumption, a model, and uh, is not really a reality at all. And what do you think about the connection of uh, this, uh, uh, well, of collective consciousness to our production of movies and other maybe artwork. Oh, yes, uh, I kind of forgot that part. Well, obviously, if we're if we are connected with everybody else, and there are these ideas, and I use Beanie Babies as a result because then I was going to tie that into the movies. That's a social thing, right? Well, social things travel around in this archetypal space as well. You know, within societies, within social units, uh, and sometimes within the species. And yes, we get ideas that also travel around. You notice that sometimes inventions all happen to occur at around the same time at five different places, right? We say Marconi invented the radio. Well, guess what? There was somebody in Germany, somebody in the UK, and somebody in America that all were doing the same thing at the same time. And isn't that interesting how they all just got to the same thing at the same time? Uh, well, that's because... They were all interested. They were all very focused on the same problem at around the same time because this was a technology that looked like it you know, might work, and they were sharing. Their interest was you pick up on that. Remember we said you have a filter, and you filter out the stuff you're not interested in? Well, you let in the stuff you are interested in. So people all over the planet who are interested and focused on a particular thing begin sharing the ideas on that thing. And it's a collaborative effort, actually, but the person who brings the device to market first gets all the credit. But there's probably been dozens of people that share in that process of their thinking and interchange with other people. And our movies work the same way. The movies that resonate strongly in a culture are movies that were probably based on ideas that were strongly, you know, being shared in the culture at that time. So we have, and we go through, we go through phases like that. You know, it's not always Beanie Babies. I can remember, um, I don't know, it was a few decades ago where the culture, at least in and around where I was, got close to being hysterical about, um, it was a child abuse, I guess. They were seeing child abuse everywhere. You know, some child walks into a doorknob and has a black eye, and, the, you, know, the, uh, you know, the officials are out, you know, investigating, that sort of thing. We got to be real paranoid about things like that. 
and we saw a boogeyman behind every tree. It was a fear-inspired thing. So because there was this fear about the predators out there getting children, that uh, we saw predators everywhere, and some things that really weren't predators at all. They were just poor taste or something else. You know, they got kind of scooped up in this this uh, frenzy to uh, grab the predators who were preying on our poor defenseless children, and it got way past the point of being rational, just like Beanie Babies gets way past the point of being rational, right? Uh, it was the same way, and that's because a fear developed, and that fear kept being pushed by the media, and then there were you know hundreds of thousands of people who were thinking about this fear and had this fear in their mind, and it just kind of became a thing in you know a life of its own it was a it was a it was a fad but not one that had a product you know and a fad for a product but it was a fad for an idea and a concept and a fear and right then movies about predators preying on children and thing would have had a real high resonance and anybody making movies and said well what would the public really you know spend money to see what's on their mind well that would have been it you see that would have been a million dollar seller at the box office because the, the population was was geared up on that particular subject and they'd go see these bad guys you know get grabbed and punished and that would be make everybody feel better so yes we we do write books and we do movies because people are sensitive to these resonances within our culture that come and go. Some of them are silly like Beanie Babies. Some of them are overdriven by fear like, uh, you know, uh, people preying on children. Not that there aren't predators, you know, that prey on children. Sure there are, but there isn't one behind every bush. It can get overdrawn, over, uh, overdone, which it did at this particular time. Um, anyway, anybody who's real sensitive to their culture picks this up. Well, who are, who are the people that are sensitive to their culture? The artists. That's what artists do, right? They, they, uh, they're sensitive to their culture and they express that so that the people look at their paintings, get that sense of something that's important to them. Well, that's writers, you know, movie makers. They, their art form is to pick those things that are a buzz in the culture and make something substantial out of them so that the people actually get a real event that they can that they can look at, or at least one on film, maybe not be real, but a, a fictional event that they can look at that expresses that thing. And if you look at literature, you probably find literature in around the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the time, uh, let's say back in the dark ages, was probably pretty dark, right? And you find literature around the Reformation and uh, at that time, and you probably find it's pretty expansive and, you know, brave new world, uh, go out and get them kind of thing. And then you find, you know, it expresses literature in your movies, express us, the people, and the, what we're thinking. There is a big connection there between these things because the artist is tuned into that and knows it's a seller because that's what people are interested in. So they go manufacture movies of a certain type, you know. You have a violent culture, and you have a lot of violent movies. You know, if you have a culture that's full of fear, then you have a lot of movies of big tough guys going out and doing violence on the bad guys because that makes all these fearful people feel better. You see? So, yeah, we get represented in movies because people who make movies want to make money, and they want to hit this resonance in their culture. So that's... 
You know, if, we, if you look at your cultural, look at your arts, and they will tell you a lot about what's going on inside the minds of the people. So I, I had this idea, which I found interesting, that if uh, dreams are a good representation of our being level, and also in dreams we can really learn uh, useful things about ourselves, but also as a trainer for this PMR, uh, this physical reality, uh, could maybe movies be considered some sort of shared dream in which we also collectively discuss or learn about one topic, for example, rights of a artificial intelligence uh, that may be coming uh, up in future years or something like that. And I understood uh, it's obvious that uh, a, if a topic resonates in, in our culture, it will be made into a movie. But at the same time, I guess it's a... Uh, it's a representation of our culture, That's as I said, the same way like a dream is a representation of our being level, maybe. And would you say it's also a learning opportunity for our collective mind in this respect? Sure. You know, it's what is a dream? A dream is, is data, right? It's information. It's, a, it's an information stream that creates this reality in your dream. And what is it uh, that creates... Uh, you know, these uh, archetypes, it's information. It's an information stream that's being shared. So it's all part of the same thing. So if you want to call the, uh, you know, the uh, fad of, of Beanie Babies a shared dream, that's all right. You see, that, that makes a connection, right? It's a shared dream. But it's a, what it is is a shared information. A dream's just information. So all the people start thinking in around the same thing. You can call it a shared dream. You can call it a morphic field. You can call it, uh, you know, all sorts of things that are decent metaphors, but what it actually is is just shared information. And when you have large groups of people sharing information, then things take off. And, yes, a concept like virtual reality being accepted by more physicists in time, as that gets more popularized, that idea will sometime get a critical mass where people will be thinking about, gosh, we live in a virtual reality. I mean, is that cool or what, you know? And they'll be thinking about this and that. And thought, well, those thoughts will pass on to other people. And other people who are thinking about that will reinforce it. And then they'll, you know, other people. And, you know, that's how you get fads of Beanie Babies. Well, you can get the same sort of thing going on things more substantial, like, you know, reality is a virtual reality. That will also get passed around, just like the fears get passed around. That's um, and they all affect each other. The culture affects what we think, puts filters on what we think. What we think affects the culture. You see, what we dream affects us. Who we are affects the dream. So you have to see it not as separate pieces. You got the green world. You got this world. You know, you got the archetypes. And all these things are separate pieces, but you have to think it was all one big integrated whole. And we're passing information around all the time. Everything's informing everything else. And you change, you know, A changes B. And because B changes, it changes A, which then changes B in a new way, which then, you know, makes A change. So the whole system is in a growing, evolving state of becoming. And sometimes these things just turn out to be nonsense fads. Sometimes they're big paradigm shifts that change the whole concept of reality. Like Newton, you know, Newton ushered in this whole idea of the of all the world, the universe being this big machine. Well, that just 
had major major changes in attitude. There was a major paradigm shift from before when the whole world was an expression of God. You had the high priests were, you know, the, the, the popes and the and the cardinals and and the people in the in religion, and then the high priest changed after Newton to being the scientist who described this big machine that we lived in. I mean, you know, a big, big paradigm shift was a man, was was big, and it just spread mind to mind, information to information. People suddenly got it where they didn't get it before. They just saw it. You know, back in uh, in this country, in the U.S., we uh, we had uh, racism in this country from the early slave days, which were mostly in the southeast, but then spread all over the place. And we, you know, we had uh, back in the early 60s, right, we started with uh, President Kennedy, who finally, with somebody in politics that stood up and said, you know, this isn't right. We need to pass some laws here to try to, to fix this. And uh, then uh, Johnson carried some of that, uh, what would it call the great society along. But people had been aware of it and known about it all this time. It wasn't like this was a new idea, but suddenly people got it. And I give that uh, credit mostly to Martin Luther King with his ideas of, hey, we're all just people. We're all human. You know, we need to live together and work with each other and, you know, one big happy family, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't black against white, white against black. You, you owe us this, you know, and any of that. It was just, hey, we're all just human beings. Let's get along, and suddenly something that had been missing for, what, 150 years suddenly clicked and people got it, and the ideas passed around, and we made more progress in the next decade or two or three decades on race than we had made in the, in the, you know, the 150 years before that, and what changed? You know, what did this? Well, what changed is people's minds, people's attitudes, and it was it was uh, that idea we were finally ready to process that level of information, to grow up to that quality of consciousness that we realized that racism was just wrong. And suddenly, when we grew up to that point, and King basically made an eloquent you know, appeal to that part of us, a whole lot of people grew up and saw it was wrong, and within several decades, we made, like I say, we made more change than we had made. I mean, we fought a civil war over it, but didn't change many minds. You know, we, we changed who owned the real estate, but it didn't modify a whole lot of people the way they thought. And suddenly, the whole culture, you know, turned around in a couple of decades because they finally grew up enough that they could get that concept. And when we did, it just spread and everybody nodded their head, they got it, and we started making real progress sometime then in the, you know, the 60s and 70s toward dealing with racism in this country. And it's a huge, you know, improvement today than it was then, but it's not done. It's still, uh, you know, there's still problems in the process, but if you look and compare the two, we've come a very long way, and uh, some of it will just have to wait until until uh, the older generation that was that grew up where racism was accepted as okay, so they just kind of pass on because the younger people don't see it that way for the most part. You know, they already uh, 
you know, know that this is, this is wrong. But we're doing much better. But that's another example of something that just took hold. Was it a dream? Well, it was a dream in Martin Luther King's mind that one day, you know, we would all just be human to human and share. Yes, it started as a dream. It's, that was his speech, right? I have a dream. And it came true. Well, not entirely true yet, but it, it at least started to make progress in that in that direction. So there's a dream that, uh, you know, one man's dream that uh, modified a whole lot of other people's attitudes. But it was because the people were ready. And because that information was passing from mind to mind, and it's that same thing, you know, it's the, it's the opposite of the mob. Good ideas can pull people up to a higher level. And at this point, it was like make a choice. We've got these good ideas or we've got some really bad ones. And the, the social system is pressing us to choose. What are you going to do? Most people grew up was their response to that pressure. Was that are they going to choose one way or the other? They grew up, and then it was it was a uh, a very fast change that had been an extremely slow change up to that point. So it's kind of the same thing. Yes, dreams, art, movies. I mean, all those things, books, movies, everything started to jump on that bandwagon, didn't they? We found suddenly we had we had the movies and TV where everybody was white except the people who were the butt of the joke, and they were black. You know, we had that sort of thing. And then suddenly we had black doctors and black presidents and black all kinds of uh, characters that were playing uh, roles other than, uh, you know, waiters and maids. And it seemed natural, and everybody looked at it and said, yeah, why not? But it all happened at once almost, everything. So, yes, it is all connected to your question, the dreams. The mind, the data that we change, the movies, the literature, we're all tied together, and these are various expressions of who we are, and everything affects everything else. So we don't think of it as, as separate pieces with links. It's just one piece, and the pieces expressing themselves, one, one whole thing that has different Expression. So we express ourselves in the dream world, express ourselves in this physical world, and we're netted with everybody else. So we share our expressions and our, and our interests and our attitudes and our, our scientific discoveries and our, our fears. All that stuff gets, gets uh, shared. Remember back about, uh, what, 15, 20 years ago when we had the, the uh, terrorist watch and it's green today or red and it was almost always orange, almost ready to go red and would go up a notch and down a notch and back up a notch. All that did was pump fear into the culture. So that had us all in a, in a state of fear most of the time, which made us very easy to manipulate. Fearful people are easy to manipulate. That's the handle by which almost any organization manipulates its people. It uses fear. If you don't do this, we'll do that. Or the boogeyman will get you. Or you'll go to hell. Or whatever it is the fear is, that's what you use to manipulate. So this was a, a political system using fear to make the people easily manipulatable. And it, of course it works. And the fear you, is almost palatable. You could, you know, everybody was up tight with fear for a decade or more, a couple of decades. And we're just slowly getting over that now. 
So, yeah, we, we live in a, we're all, we're all netted, you know, in that sense. So we can't help it, even if we're on the outside of it. And we said, well, that fear thing's silly. That's a, you know, that's, I don't buy into that. You're still affected by it because there's another, you know, three million people who are thinking those fearful thoughts. You're part of that culture. You get smeared with it, too. You may fight it or you may struggle against it or decide that you don't want to go there, but it's still there. It's still part of you. You can filter it out to some extent, but you live in that culture. And as a part of that culture, you're connected to that culture. And when you're connected, you have to deal with that, you know, that mindset. What about cultures at war? You know, notice how they all kind of buckle in and under and, uh, you know, follow the Fuhrer to whatever, you know, conclusions he leads you to. It's not they're all bad people. They're all good people, but they get caught up in a, in a mindset that is very pervasive and very hard to deny. And just like Beanie Babies, it's very hard not to get out there in line and get your Beanie Baby because that's really important, you see. People get wound up in a mindset. It's not that these people are, are uh, you know, weak minds. And uh, you know, why would all these people get out in, in line at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning to get there when the store opens because there's only – you know, 100 Beanie Babies at the store and the first 100 people are going to get it and you need to get one, you know, you think, well, they must really not be too bright. You know, it's just a little cloth sack with some, you know, sand in it or, or something. And uh, But it's not the way it is. When you get caught up in that kind of a, of a mental web, you know, you need to do that. It's important to do that. You fall in behind the president who's declaring war on something and suddenly the nation ends up with a mindset that's hard to deny. It's hard to oppose if you're part of that culture. So it, it's got its upside and it's got its downside. It's just the way it works. You can't think of those people as individuals. Well, why did they fall for that trick? You know, that's an unfair assessment. It's not that they fell for the trick. They just got swept up in the, in the, uh, in the mob, if you will. Or if it's a bunch of people at the monastery, they get swept up in the elation, in the joy. The way it works. We're funny people, we humans, with our brains and our intents and our communication. We're strange, strange critters. We do a lot of things that seem kind of silly at the time, but when we're doing them, they don't seem silly at all. They seem necessary. Tom, you've provided your uh, My Big Toe readers with your latest MBT definitions, which can be found at um, mbtevents.com on our Good Stuff page. Um, you've described information as raw data. Pally refers to um, that uh, definition and goes on to state that we need our personal consciousness filters or programs to make sense of the data. But if we try to pigeonhole the information via strict filters in the form of our current five physical senses, a lot of the core message from the original data packet will get lost. Um, then he goes on to ask, is it therefore true that all subjective experience can be devoid of all physical or non-physical situations and in essence is just information in the core of our consciousness? You have answered some of this in the previous questions, but can you um, 
expand on that a little? Well, first of all, uh, in those definitions, and there's, I don't recall now how many of them, but there's probably about 18 or 19 or 20 definitions that I put out of some of the fundamental terms, and I would suggest everybody go look that up. It's on the mbtevents.com. It's also uh, in the forum and on the wiki. I think you can find them all there. It might even be on my webpage. Um, anyway, uh, I differentiated between data and information. Yeah, data uh, is different. Information is when you take data and you interpret it. You, the consciousness operates on it and, and, and interprets meaning out of the data. So the an interpreted meaning is what I'm calling information. The data itself could be a bunch of ones and zeros. The ones and zeros are are the data. It's the you know Donna said raw data, but then the the consciousness gets that raw data. Maybe that raw data is a bunch of pixels on a screen, and then the consciousness looks at all those pixels and sees a picture and interprets that picture to be something. So that's kind of the difference between data and information. And the uh, it is true that when you get a data stream, you only interpret, you know, you interpret that data stream based on your own awareness, your own uh, fear, your own uh, knowledge, your own experience is how you interpret that data. Therefore, there's parts of that data that you don't interpret because you don't have the knowledge, experience, you know, information, or you have a fear or a belief that blocks it, and that is just lost. You don't get that part of what you could get from that data. So you only take a part that suits you. You take a part that you're capable of processing. What you are incapable of processing disappears. You don't process it. You don't get it. So that's why we all live in our own unique reality system, because we all get data streams in this, in this game, but we all interpret them personally. Now, is it possible, you know, and all of that is, that personal interpretation, of course, is what's called subjective. That's your subjective interpretation, as opposed to what is outside in the world, which we call that objective. Well, the fact is, there really isn't anything out there in the world that is really objective. Okay. Everything is a subject. Is everything is subjective? Our whole reality is based on that data stream and our subjective interpretation of it. And we just think that you know that that book that's sitting on the table in front of us that that's objective because I can measure it and I can weigh it and we can all look at it and agree that you know it's a big book and it's got a red cover and we so we call that objective. But everybody sees that red a little differently. What's a big book or not depends on your viewpoint and your experience with books. If you've always worked in a library with great big books like, uh, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary that probably weighs, you know, 20 pounds and is uh, 10 inches thick, then it's a little book, not a big book. So it depends on where you've been and what your experience is as to, as to what you see there and how you interpret that. But even the measurement is not without it's personal error. If you have 100 people measure that book, they will get 100 different answers. Now, the first 10 decimal places may all be the same, but eventually you'll get down to a point where they don't know. They have to guess, and people will guess differently. Their equipment has errors. Their equipment is 
tuned or, or uh, has, has its own limits of things. Equipment, things that are made can only be made to a certain level of tolerances, you see. So there's always a plus or minus question mark. There's always an error involved, and how we interpret that is is different. So we don't really have anything that's truly objective. In other words, precisely like this. There is no such thing as precisely. Then we have to get to, it's just probable. Okay, there's a probability that it's somewhere between, you know, 10.567 and 10.5672. And here's a certain probability that it's, you know, that it's not any bigger than that or a probability that it's smaller than that. So everything is really subjective in a sense that, that nothing is precisely defined. It's just impossible to do that. Our, our nature of our tools and ourselves don't, uh, don't allow for, for uh, perfect anything. There's always error. And there's error in your interpretation because you don't have the perfect tools for interpreting. So in a way, yes, everything is subjective. And those parts that we can't that we can't see are lost. We grow up some. Our decision space grows. We see things that we didn't see before. I have people that read my book once. They read it twice. So they turn around and read it a third time, and they say, "Wow, how did I miss all that stuff? I didn't know. I didn't know you talked about that, you know, in there." And that's because they're a different person. And when they're a different person. You know, they interpret it differently. Different things mean different things to them than did before in the first time. So every time you change who you are and grow up, the whole world changes because <laughs> you interpret the data stream differently. So that's uh, that's just, you know, that's the way that, that works. So the subjective-objective problem is really one of how, how subjective or how objective is it. Nothing is purely objective. Some things have very small errors, and that's that book. There's only small errors there, so we tend to call that objective because we all agree more or less that it's red, though everybody may see a really different shade of red. Uh, we all more or less agree that it's a big book or a small book, and we can all discuss you know, things like that and come to a reasonable agreement that, yeah, we're seeing the same thing. So we call that objective, but it isn't really. It's subjective evaluations that have small uncertainties about them. So because our subjective uh, assessment has a little uncertainty, that's what we define as objective. And then when our subjective assessment has a big uncertainty, that's what we call subjective. But it's all subjective. Uh, that's just the nature of reality. We get a data stream and what we call physical reality is our interpretation of that data stream. That can't help but be subjective. Some of it is high levels of uncertainty, and some of it are very small levels of uncertainty. Small stuff we call objective. And that's mostly, that's mostly the stuff. The objective world turns out, turns out to be the stuff. You know, it's the book. It's not the, the love or the caring or the compassion. You know, that's always the subjective stuff because there's a lot of uncertainty. How do you measure that? What is it? Go ahead. I probably not answered your question entirely, but uh, keep working at it. Maybe we'll get there. Yeah. No, that, that was perfect. I've had this idea that um, if, if you are, for example, in a shopping mall 
there is a sense of the situation, like there's a vibe, and at the same time, the vibe is influenced by me, how I'm feeling at that moment and at that day. Uh, if I've eaten something bad, I may not feel very well. And all this mix of um, uh, situational elements will get mixed into our my, my vibe of the situation and also in my perception of everything that I see. And this idea I've had is um, basically the, this whole information is formless. Uh, it gets through my filters and then I try to make sense of it in respect of, okay, I'm not feeling very well because I ate something, so my stomach is hurting. But essentially, it's just like a feeling, something formless, like, like for example, a color. Uh, and if I just try to sense the have the, uh, perceive the sense uh, in that situation, I may catch something which I cannot really grab into, uh, put into words, but I have this feeling that I have grabbed everything that is happening at that moment. And that's when my question came, whether all information that we receive is essentially just this formless thing, which we subsequently interpret into something meaningful, and but it arrives in this formless way, and we then shape it the second time in with with the concepts uh, which we know, and uh, will cut away everything that we don't know. Does it yeah. make sense? Is yeah. it like that? It does, work like, it does work like that, but there is one other thing to add to that, and that typically within you know interactions between conscious beings, each conscious being. You know, it, you have information, which is assessed data that's, that's your, your interpreted the message, right? You've interpreted the message, and you get that. Now, if you want to send that to somebody else, you can't give them your interpreted message. What you do is you take your interpreted message, you break that into data, not information. So your interpreted message, we're calling information. You take that, turn it into data, send it to them, as data, it could be a little acoustic vibrations if you're talking, it could be a handwritten note, you know, it could be Morse code, or it could be ones and zeros. You send them the data, and they take it, and they interpret it into what they, you know, what it means to them. And if they want to communicate to somebody, they take that interpretation, transfer it into data, send it to somebody else, who then interprets that data into what they want. So you're in a mall and you've eaten something that disagrees with you and your wife is there because there's something that she really needs to find and she's looking for it and she's frustrated because she can't find it and you have all this stuff going on. You're also tied into all the mental activity. You know, you look around and see all these people. You can kind of feel and, and connect with all of them, the people in the stores, the people running the stores, even the, the executives back in the big cities who are the chairman of the board of the people of, of those stores and so on that aren't even physically here, but it's all connected and you take in that whole thing all at one time. That's true. All that is data. That's just your formless data. And then you interpret it. But then when you want to share that, now if you want to share that to another person or if you just want to convert it to yourself, make sense of it, you have to interpret it. If you want to make sense of it, you have to interpret it into language because you think in terms of language. So you interpret it into some kind of language. And much of what you have, you may not be able to interpret very well into language. So you get some kind of glom of all of it, some of it 
you just may not want to deal with. And you just exit that. You know, that goes into the bid bucket. You're not going to deal with that. And you take the rest you're going to deal with. You cram it into a language which throws another 20 or 30% of it away that doesn't fit in the language very well. And then you're left with what you've got. And that's what you can think about. That's just what you can think about. And then you put that into ones and zeros or bits and you send it to your wife. And she gets those bits and she has to reassess them in terms of her own, uh, you know, filters. And she throws stuff away that doesn't compute and she, uh, you know, integrates what you're telling with all the bits she's getting from all the other consciousness and all the other things going on and things that she's connected to. Maybe she's got, uh, you know, a, a parent or a sibling somewhere having a problem. She's getting that data, too, on top of it. And then she gets something, you see, and then she communicates back to you. But she can't communicate her message. She communicates data. And then you have to reinterpret, and you throw some of that away. So you see, it's a very inexact process of sharing anything with anybody, and everything you get is a is a kind of a, a shadow on the wall, right, rather than the thing itself. And that's just the way communication is, and it's always like that. So everything is subjective. So it's not just that you get it and pass it on. You know, you get the data, and you have to do it, but then what you give out is data. You do the same thing. You give out, and other people have to deal with your data and try to figure out what it means. And when they figure it out, they discard all, all sorts of stuff, and they come up with interpretation which may or may not have anything to do with, you know, because you had a surly tone and whatever, and that had to do with what you ate. They get it, and they interpret it. Your wife interprets that as you're aggravated at her for dragging you out to the mall. And that's not it at all. It's that you ate something that disagreed with you, you see. But that's the way, that's just the way that works. That's why it's good to be very kind and generous with people when you're communicating with them and, and try to find what's common and what's positive and let the rest of it go because it's liable to be noise, not, you know, not, uh, not message. So, for example, if I'm at this situation and I can sense the vibe, so that vibe is, for me, already information, but it doesn't make sense to me so that I can I must shape it uh, some more with language and with things that really I want to process. And this information, which is already in me in this formless uh, state, in this just sense, or maybe I could interpret it as a shade of color, will get shaped the second time after it already arrived in me. Is that uh, a mm -hmm. correct interpretation? Yes. Okay, so there are several steps of shaping of the information uh, based on what I really want to process and get yes. processed. And then when you pass it on, it gets shaped again. Yes. Thank you. And then That's when they the pass it on, it gets shaped again. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, the, the old game about say something to somebody and you pass it around a long circle and by the time it comes back, it's totally different. That's the way our communications tend to work, too. By the time it gets second and third and fourth hand, is likely not to have much of the original content left in it. Everybody's added their own little, you know, perception to it, and it's just not the same as what it had started. 
maybe maybe to add one more thing i just realized during some experiments with my friends uh, when we try to sense what the other uh, is creating in a non-physical reality some like like landscape uh i may get some sense but it doesn't really make sense to me i, I cannot work with it so basically i may have the right connection but i don't know it uh, it's too uncertain because it doesn't make sense to me and i try again and again until something uh, i can work with uh, appears in, uh, in front of my eyes our non-physical eyesight and then it's again shaped with my everything that is me basically yeah you know on the same subject that's to be a good remote viewer you have to learn to not shape things. You have to learn to take in the data, report exactly what you see without doing any operations on it to make it make sense. That's the key element in whether you're looking at an aura, getting information about health from a database, uh, remote viewing, or any of these kinds of things. The key thing there is not to add your own twist to it, just to take it the way you get it and 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 know how to separate yourself out of the process of, of uh, you know, processing that data. You have to remove yourself from, the data, from that data processing before you filter it, because as soon as you filter it, it's not the same message anymore. And remote viewers spend most of their time learning that. That's the hard, that's the hard thing for them to learn, because they'll get, a, they'll get some data and they'll right away try to make sense of it. What is that? What am I looking at? And that's a problem because every time they do that, they end up giving the wrong thing because you know, their analysis doesn't have any basis. What they need to do is say, well, I saw this wavy thing and it had a ball at either end of it and it looked like that. And just leave it go at that rather than try to say, oh, that was a bed spring and you know it was doing this or that and try to make something of it, they need to just report what they see. And it's hard. Most of us have to work hard at getting to that point where we don't taint what we get with our own with our own assessments, with our own guessing. Because in the world we get used to guessing. That's how we interpret, you know, when we hear things and we uh, talk with people, we're constantly filling in the gaps, reading between the lines guessing not necessarily what they say, but you know what they mean by what they say, because the language is not that precise. We all don't talk like lawyers. You know, a lawyer will take uh, six pages to say what anybody else could write down in a paragraph, because they have to, they have to uh, close every misinterpretation that is possible. Any way that anybody could construe this, you know, this paragraph to mean something other than the, what it's intended, if you cover every one of those possibilities, it takes you six pages to say that paragraph with all of the caveats and everything to make sure there isn't any way it could possibly be misinterpreted because with legal documents, the other guy is trying real hard to misinterpret it to his advantage. So that's why when you hand a lawyer something, he sends you something back that's four times larger because that's his job to close every possible loophole. Well, normal conversation isn't like that. When we speak with each other, we're very imprecise. We use words that have four or five different shades of meaning, could be interpreted a lot of different ways, and we answer back with the same kind of generality and imprecision. And the only way we can have a conversation at all 
is because we've gotten good at interpreting what somebody means, not really paying a lot of attention to exactly what they say, but we kind of get a sense, and partly that's mental. We're kind of tied into their, their what they're thinking at the same time. Well, we tend to do that out of habit with everything. And now you're remote viewing, and you don't have any context. When you're talking to somebody, there's context to the conversation, so you can guess out of that context. Now you're remote viewing, and somebody says, oh, here's a set of coordinates. What do you see? There's no context. It's difficult to not start interpreting, you know, the images and things that you see, because that's what we normally do all the time. So it's, um, it's, it's harder than it sounds to do that. But that's what makes a good remote viewer is he's just learned to keep his own personal interpretation out of his description of what it is he sees. And a lot of times it doesn't make any sense to him at all until somebody, uh, you know, points out what the target was. And then, you know, if he's a good remote viewer, he sees how it all fits in. But if he tried to, you know, if he tried to figure that out, he never would have figured it out because he didn't have context. So you're right. It's, that's the way it works.